What's up? Welcome back to We Read Theory, a podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. I'm Mark. I'm still Alex. And today, we got something just a little bit different. Usually, we just we pick one work and we discuss it kind of in depth. Today, we're going to be jumping around a little bit to discuss the different ways in which fascism has been defined over the years and maybe figure out if we can come up with something that works even better. Fascism is really different from a lot of other kinds of ideologies. It's very different from socialism. It's very different from liberalism in the sense that it wasn't formulated by academics, you know, kind of writing papers and trying to come up with solutions. It's very much something that was kind of invented in the field and then formulated on paper kind of after the fact. And uh, the first person that we're going to talk about is, of course, the original fascist himself. Benito Mussolini, and this is something that he even leans into pretty hard. Mm -hmm. So one of the big kind of upshots of fascism being created in that way is that it's kind of inherently incoherent because of that. And so we'll get to that. But I want to start by talking a little bit about what Mussolini had to say about fascism. But um, going back to what you said about fascism being hard to define, I feel like that's part of its appeal in the same way we can't have effective gun control because before we actually define like what we're banning, like what an assault rifle is, right? It, it's always like tied to things, right? Gun controls are like defined, like tied to AR-15s, right? So you're going to ban an AR-15. But then you can just take a bunch of other parts and recombine it into some Frankenstein gun, right? That does the exact same thing, right? Fascism isn't just... Nazis, and that's what I feel like the American public has in their head. Like, if it's not Nazis, not goose-stepping, sig yeah, Nazis, and, then it's not fascism. And specifically, Nazis from 1936 to 45, not even like the Nazis back in mm -hmm. the early 1930s or back in the 1920s. I totally agree. Yeah. And it's, it's impossible to convince them that, like, socialists aren't, in the same way, <laughs> socialists aren't um, just people from, you know, Cuba or Venezuela or starving in gulags, they attach <laughs> themselves onto what? No, I'm serious. No, no, they, no. Like I attach do. themselves onto these buzzwords, and the mainstream media only reinforces this idea. Um, There's certainly a lot of play with definitions when it comes to being a fascist that I've noticed. I think that we've all noticed that, um, like, uh, you you see this you see this play with white supremacy a lot, which is like, for a lot of people, white supremacy is actively calling for like a state that treats white people better than black people but or or you know any people of color really but in reality white supremacy can also be just passively accepting a state that does that already and promoting a message of equality without wanting to attack the specific issues as they exist mm -hmm. i also think that people don't recognize that all these ideologies are very 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 fluid Right, and you can have two people who don't necessarily believe the same thing, but could definitely fall under un, fall under one of these sort of I don't want to say umbrella ideologies, but one of under the umbrella mm -hmm. of fascism. There's many it takes many different forms. Exactly. And, and that's kind of the uh question that we're trying to answer today, right? Is that what is the thing that because we have all these ideologies that uh that, that you can generally get away with calling fascist and people will agree with you, and a lot of them are really, really different from each other, right? A lot of them are more religious. A lot of them are, you know, 
neo-pagan. A lot of them are totally, um, you know, a-religious. And, 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 you know, the economic policies can change somewhat. Even the racial policies can change somewhat. But there's always that underlying flavor that feels right. And I, I have a personal theory about what that flavor is at its core, but we have a few people to discuss first. So as I said, Benito Mussolini. Benito Mussolini is kind of like the original fascist, right? That's like he, he, he invented the word fascismo. And he chose the symbol of, and he and he named it after the fascis, which is a symbol of power from Roman history. And the logic among leftists is that you, the last person you should ever listen to uh, when you're looking for a good definition of fascism is a fascist. Because fascists, you know, will lie. They'll say whatever they need to say to get what they want. And that's totally true. But that said, Mussolini comes from a time where a lot of the ideas like the race theory, um, the the hierarchical thinking, were much more mainstream. And so he's actually able to be a lot more open about what it is that he believes. And so I think that he actually gives a much more accurate picture than a lot of fascists, who, or a lot of people who I believe to be fascist today. I feel like the, the one phrase that um, has stuck with me over other people's reporting of fascism mm -hmm is the phrase they use called hide your power level. Hide your power level, yeah. So what that means That's a is, phrase that's kind of come into leftist parlance, too, recently, I feel. Really? Like. A little bit. Just a little bit. I Well, I feel like that's that's a... If, if you break it down, it is a generally effective strategy. They understand that there are these um, buzzwords that make people think a certain way. I would argue that it's assume. more effective for fascists to hide their power levels than um, liberals, oh, yeah. but... I mean, I'm sorry, oh my god, than socialists. <laughs> but... Um, you know, that's obviously, that's, of course, something that socialists have been arguing about forever, you know, Vanguard Party versus out in the open movement mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Without further ado, let's get right into what it is that Mussolini believes fascism to be. Fascism is not a political system. It's not a social system. It's not a religious system. It is all of those things. But at its core, it is a fundamental way of thinking about what people are and how we decide what is right and what we should do. It's, it's very anti-materialistic. This is all according to Mussolini. It does not view people as individuals in the same way that we're familiar with liberals viewing people as individuals. I mean, of course, people are individuals, but their value, their personhood, does not reside within them as an individual. It resides on a kind of a higher plane that's somewhat religious in its significance, and and really your value comes as a member of a larger group, of a people, of a nation. And the nation is defined not racially, not even maybe culturally, but it's defined by the existence of a state, because the state is the manifestation of a group of people's will to be a nation. Now, this is, this is kind of funny to me, because this actually feels like a really materialistic definition of the state to me personally. And that's funny because the whole point that Mussolini is making in opposing socialism is that he doesn't like the materialism of the socialists. He thinks that we should be um, kind of thinking about things on a higher level from like a higher power perspective. What do you mean by materialism? So materialism in the sense that when we think about what is important in the world, we have to look at material things like 
we have to talk like when we when we look at who is oppressed, we look at who has access to fewer material advantages and what and what like actual real world systems that you can observe are making that to be the case. Okay. Because because like for a lot of human history, um, we've been really, really, really concerned with things that are not material. Like, I mean, think about how much effort was put in ancient Egypt into building these giant pyramids. Um, and the the kind of common logic is that, well, it was all about, you know, the afterlife, the pharaohs were, you know, that's not a materialistic goal to create a, a great afterlife for yourself. That's a completely non-materialistic goal. And so the, the socialist way of thinking is that, or at least, you know, the historical materialistic way of thinking is that actually people are really basically motivated by their material. And even when you look at um, I remember, like, when you look at, like, say, something like the Peasants' Revolt, you can look at it from a materialistic perspective, and you can say, oh, well, the peasants were really, you know, revolting um, in, around the time of the Protestant Reformation because their material conditions were really deteriorating, or you can look at it from a purely religious perspective. They didn't like the doctrines of the Catholic Church, and so I'm actually someone who generally believes that people tend to act more based on these kind of economic material motivations, but Mussolini does not agree with that whatsoever but that said at the same time his definition of the nations feels really materialistic to me it's it doesn't feel to me like there's anything intrinsic to the people who are a part of the nation except that they've made the choice to will into existence a nation and the way that they do that is to will into existence the state so if Mussolini wanted to motivate you know the working class of or middle class of his country to do something he would say, we can do this and we should do this for the glory of Italy, not because you're necessarily going to get anything out of it. Absolutely. Exactly. It's all about serving a higher calling. And that sounds very religious. Oh, well, Mussolini is very, is very, he, he, he's, he, he even will say that this, this way of thinking about the nation is very religious in his nature. He uses the word religion to describe it. But that's kind of funny, right? Um, so we're talking about like, the kind of incoherency with the view on materialism, the view on religiosity is also equally incoherent because Mussolini, and we'll, we're going to get into Umberto Eco in just a second because he's, of course, super important when we talk about defining fascism. But Umberto Eco brings up um, the kind of inconsistency in how Mussolini dealt with religion because at one point he said, if God exists, let him strike me down. It's kind of proof that God didn't exist. But he also had no problem cozying up with the Catholic Church. You know, they were a huge source of his power in a lot of ways. So, Really, kind of what I'm taking away from Mussolini is that while he feels consistent on the surface, when you dig down on him, I think the uh, inconsistencies really do begin to show. But ultimately, the policy prescription that comes from viewing the state as one and the same as the nation is that this is really kind of with how you get totalitarianism, where the state now, because it is the people, it is the nation, it subsumes the culture, it subsumes the religion. Everything political inside that was already inside of the state, and also the political aspects that are outside of the state traditionally, um, it assumes the military as it normally does, and just everything. I mean, that's what totalitarianism is, and so that's kind of what Mussolini's idea of the nation seeks to justify: is that creation of a totalitarian system. So I feel like, like just going back to the religious thing, really mm -hmm. quick, like. I'm a white guy in his early mid twenties, so obviously I have strong opinions on religion. Of course. Okay. But I feel like there's like certain like, like phrases you hear in a lot of religious contexts, like living, li like quote, living by faith and not by sight, right? 
and yeah. like having the basis of your whole religion being or or like your whole ideology being on faith like say like you're you're a catholic so you're a creationist god created everything right and you say you look around and say wow look at um look at this earth that's so beautiful god created it for us or you're an italian in what was it the 30s so um mussolini actually took power in the late 20s late okay so late 20s you're the late 20s you would look around and say wow look, this is so beautiful. Italy is, you know, great because it just is. And we will do things for... Well, fascism is... And, and I think we've kind of exhausted every, all the uh, value we can get from thinking about Mussolini. Because obviously, what we're mainly getting from Mussolini is that fascism exists to justify totalitarianism, justify full state power. And it's also a rejection of the Enlightenment and of the modernism that kind of comes as a result of that. A rejection of materialist thinking and of rationality as like a means of kind of coming to political conclusions and so i think that's what you're really kind of hitting on you really you really hit on a good point when you said lead by uh, um kind of faith not by sight um exactly don't focus on the material don't think about people as purely um he, he considers it to be kind of animalistic to think of people as purely concerned with the material we have higher concerns and so with that said, uh, let's go talk a little bit about Umberto Eco, who, of course, lived under Mussolini's fascist regime and kind of comes away with his own ideas about fascism. And, of course, he's particularly famous for his essay, Ur Fascism, in which he outlines 14 points. And we're going to go over those points really quick right now. If you've heard any definition of fascism, there's probably a greater than 50% chance that it was this one. And so the idea that Echo is trying to get at is that if you look at the Nazis, the Italian fascists, the uh, Croatian Ustashi, the Spanish Falangists, all of these people feel like they're really different in a lot of ways, and yet their affinity for each other was obvious. And they feel really similar. So what is that glue that binds all the pieces of each of them together that gives them that kind of fascist feeling? And so we're going to go over the points, um, but it's important to remember that an ideology does not have to exhibit all 14 of them to be considered fascist. It only actually has to have one in order for that kind of, in order for fascism to coagulate around that one thing. So the 14 points are one. A cult of tradition. Two, a rejection of modernism, like we talked about. So that's a rejection of enlightenment beliefs like rationality, materialism. Aspect number three is a cult of action. To kind of think before you act is sort of emasculating. Now is not the time for thinking. Now is the time for action. Number four, to disagree with the fascist consensus is treason. Number five, um, because fascism is a very like consensus oriented ideology they tend to be very racist i feel like it's the easiest thing to get a bunch of people together is like differences between people that you can really see and tell them that there's intrinsic differences like in eugenics like tell them that there's intrinsic differences and you're better than somebody because of these things you were just born with so it gives people a really easy way to feel you know better about themselves yeah and you you could even argue that like that like class conflict is a method of 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 kind of uniting people based on differences with the outsiders, although, you know, you might um, believe 
those differences to be kind of materially significant. Mm-hmm. Um, number six, there's kind of an appeal to middle class frustration. They don't really appeal to the lower classes in the same way. And, and fascists do tend to unite with traditional elites, but really they get their ground game from the frustrated middle class who doesn't really know where they fit in in society. Um, number seven, obsession with a plot against them. The most um, famous version of this is, of course, the Jewish question uh, championed by the Nazis. And basically, the obsession with the plot against them kind of feeds into number eight, which is that their enemies are simultaneously strong and weak, you know, which is something that we ca- we certainly see with the Nazis, where they kind of ridicule the Jews and the Roma and uh, gender, sex, minorities. And um, saying that like they're inferior, but at the same time they're coming for you. But at the same time, you have to take it really, really seriously because they're a serious, serious threat. Number nine, life for the fascist is lived for struggle. Fascism is not an ideology that, at its core, seeks to make life better in any material way for people. It's mostly about making it better in a spiritual sense by living for struggle and kind of achieving this greatness. Number 10, elitism and hierarchy. I mean, there, there's obviously a lot of overlap between all of these points, but, um, you know, if, you're, if, if it's all about we need everyone to be the same, then, of course, you're going to be elitist and kind of hierarchical, putting those people who believe the same and who represent the ideal of your ideology at the top with everyone else at the bottom. Number 11, education to heroism. This is one that I think is particularly important. The fascist is not happy being a piece of a machine at least not at least they're not happy thinking of themselves as a piece in a larger machine they have to be the they have to feel as if they can personally be the hero and they're educated to do so echo writes that kind of thinking this way will encourage people to run to their deaths for the cause and that's really really advantageous to the people who will ultimately make up the elites of the new fascist system like that's why we get wildly more um, right-wing lone wolves than exactly, um, exactly. left-wing ones. Exactly. It's, ex- it's exactly what we're talking about. Um, number 12. Uh, we talked about how the cult of action is sort of um, this projection of toxic masculinity <clears throat> in which to think before you act is emasculating. And so that's why number thir- I'm sorry, that's why number 12 is misogyny and discrimination against non-traditional gender and sexual identities. Number 13 is a kind of vague collective will interpreted by a single leader. This is what Mussolini was talking about when he talks about the state embodying the whole of the nation. There's, you know, they don't believe in democracy in the same way that like a liberal or even like a democratic socialist might, where you literally get a consensus from the people. It's more that the people have this vague notion of a popular will that has to be interpreted by a leader. Once again, we're talking about justifying totalitarianism more than trying to be a coherent ideology that seeks to make the world better. And number 14 is newspeak. Fascists use newspeak. They use their own kind of language. And specifically, there's something that people kind of miss about newspeak a lot. A lot of people will talk about the creation of new words as Orwellian, as kind of like, as a form of newspeak. I think that really misses what is the core of newspeak, which is actually a limiting of what words you can use a limiting of what is actually of what vocabulary is available to you and therefore denying oppressed peoples the vocabulary to express their oppression in words and i actually see this quite a bit you know 
we all talk with people who are kind of like playing with fascist ideas sometimes or out and out fascist sometimes. And if you're smart, you know that there's some words that you can use that are just going to get you totally like dismissed right off the bat. Uh, funny enough, fascist often feels like one of those words. Like Donald Trump exhibits quite a few, if not all of these 14 points, and yet to call him a fascist is to get you outright dismissed when talking to a lot of people. And a lot of these people aren't fascists hiding their power level. They're just regular old conservatives. And yet what's happened is that that word has effectively been taken out of their acceptable vocabulary for political use. And so it's basically impossible because of this to call out fascism when you see it, even though everyone at least nominally agrees that it's bad. They're so close. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes people get very close. But, uh... Just miss it. <laughs> but, um... So what do you what do you think of those fourteen points? Yeah, so I one have a like a more like open ended thing to say. I don't think it's been removed from their acceptable acceptable vocabulary necessarily. Like like you said, they're getting they're getting so close, but they're just taking portions of this that they agree with and then re trying to reapply it and morph it into something into a conclusion that they've already come to that they already agree with, right? So one of the things that you've not undoubtedly heard if you're online at all is Antifa is the, the real, real fascist. fascist. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fucking stupid, obviously, because there wouldn't be any Antifa without the Fa. Yeah. And I, I mean, first of all, of course, I don't like to take it for granted that just because they identify as anti-fascist, that means they can't be fascist. But of course, because a lot of a lot of fascists identify as hating fascists and yet are still fascists. Um, but I do I do agree with you that in the specific case of when people talk about anti-fascists being the actual fascists, what they're talking about is that they're okay with using force and violence in politics and that that's kind of enough. And that that's kind of one of the things that I want to address with this episode is that, of course, that's not enough, that there's, that there are, it's a specific ideology. It's not just any kind of authoritarianism. It's not just any ide ideology that justifies violence, because any leftist should already be aware that every single ideology justifies violence. Liberals justify violence against people that they call criminals. I mean, this is, it's, it's, it's not, there's nothing special about justifying violence in politics. You could even argue that all politics is the justification of violence. I, I also think that also applies to their view of censorship. They're like, oh, they're, yeah, everyone's... Everyone's um, too sensitive now. There's words you can't say. Um, literally, essentially, they're, they are saying disagreement is treason. Mm -hmm. I can't have conservative opinions. I'm being censored on this multi-million dollar Netflix deal, it, which is why I'm being paid a lot of money to say these words. Yeah, and what they're missing is that it's not the disagreement that's treason. It's actually what you're positively promoting that is, I mean, not even treason, but just bad and disagreeable. Mm -hmm. So... That is one definition of fascism that kind of seeks to compart that kind of seeks to break it down into its constituent parts. And I like it. I like it. But as Echo himself even kind of says, it's not the existence of one or even all of these points that creates a fascist ideology. It's just that these are kind of anchors that the ideology can form around. And so I really want to get into what that thing, 
that like unnamed thing that forms around these points actually is. So to talk about that, we have a couple of other definitions to kind of get into. The second definition, um, well, actually the third definition, if you count your scrutiny, uh, is... Great, real quick, before we just jump into that, okay. I had a closed-ended question about this. Um, the, the 14 points, mm -hmm. is that in any way related to the 14 words? No, there's or nothing to do with the 14 words. It was just a coincidence. Yeah. Definition number three is palingenetic ultranationalism. What that means specifically is that fascism is an is any ideology that believes that the best way to kind of define people into groups is by nation, and nations are of course a very slippery topic. I actually kind of like Mussolini's definition of the nation because because I think it's a pretty materialistic definition. As a materialist, I kind of like it actually. I think it's pretty fair, um, but. You know, we all kind of get that a nation is kind of a slippery mix of ethnicity and culture, sometimes religion, uh, a political system. But a nation can sometimes exist in a greater area than an actual particular political system um, exists. You know, that's where irredentism comes from. But the idea that these kind of slippery definitions for people are a good way to separate people into categories, that it's actually maybe even the most important way. And that you, as a person, should be supremely concerned with the well-being of yourself and the people who you share a nation with, is what ultranationalism really is at its core. The palingenetic is the idea that our nation is ancient, and it once had, it was once in a state of, of like, supreme greatness, but we've since fallen. And now is the time where we, with, like, kind of biblical significance, rise up again. And those of you who are familiar with the work of Ian Danskin will hear me um, kind of echoing what he had to say about this exact same definition. Um, I like this one. I do think it gets at kind of what that what that stuff that coagulates around the 14 points really is, which is where, which is also kind of what Mussolini was talking about, where the state is the people and it um, is kind of the thing that you should be primarily concerned with and and primarily motivated to like uh, bring about to a new um, state of greatness, but it adds that palingenetic aspect, and it's easy to see where that comes. It's easy to see why uh, Roger Griffin is the one who actually coined this definition, why he would come to that conclusion, because when you look at Germany, when you look at Italy, when you look at Spain. I mean, these are all places that used to be, these are all uh, nations that used to be much more powerful and much more influential than they were at the time where they actually descended into fascism. And that kind of sense of embarrassment at being knocked down from a formerly greater place is generally thought to be one of the great motivators to get people to kind of accept fascism or be motivated to create it. Yeah, I think, I think some guy once said he wanted to make America great again. I forget who. But, um, exactly. <laughs> he's, yeah, yeah, no, that guy sounds like, I think he didn't really, um, uh, our, uh, our, Hey guys, we think Donald Trump is a fascist. Did you notice that? Oh yeah, no, I was really trying to be, you know, like subtle about it, <laughs> but you know, I, I guess, I guess I wasn't doing a good job, but he doesn't say like any actual, um, any, it's any, always very vague, right? Yeah. He's not, he's not very specific. Or it's, when they do get specific, the mask slips off and you realize that it's the kind of 
national purity, which is often just means racial purity. Sometimes it means cultural purity. It depends on who you ask. Like a lot of fascists are okay with people who, a lot of like white fascists are actually seem to be, at least for the time being, okay with people who aren't white as long as they can subscribe to what feels like the right culture mm -hmm. or the right religion and stuff like that. They can, air quotes, acclimate. Yeah, they can acclimate, exactly. I feel like this also extends to people, um, this, this contributes to not, I wouldn't, I don't want to say isolationism because I'm pretty sure fascism is also ever expanding their nation's borders and conquering. I think that that is more incidental. I would argue that it's more incidental to fascism than it is a necessary part of it. I think that the expansionism kind of comes from this idea that if you're going to rise on this palingenetic myth, that like we need to create this, like recreate this form of greatness, that either intense self purification or expansionism, or often both, as we saw in the case of Nazi Germany in particular, um, then I think it kind of becomes inevitable. But I don't know that I would call it an intrinsic part of the fascist ideology. Because once again, you can be fascist without being in control of a state, and you have to be in control of a state, or at least some kind of military apparatus to have any kind of expansionist or military ambitions. Yeah, but at, at the same time, I feel like if they were to, if, 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 if a fascist leader was to you know, want to take over neighboring countries, it wouldn't be to evangelize to them, to get them to join their movement. It'd be to take them over and, I don't want to say en enslave them, but bring them under their control. Sometimes enslave, but yeah, sometimes just... But not necessarily. To, to, to either, yeah, to either use them as a sort of human resource, and they're also their physical resources, or to kind of force an assimilation into the fascist culture system. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. So, I saved my personal, I don't know if I think it's necessarily the most accurate definition, but I think it's really good. I really like this one. I think it gets at something that a lot of liberals who like to um, criticize fascism don't, don't, often maybe don't think about. And so this one comes, this, this one's honestly come from a lot of places. I've heard people talk about it as Foucault's boomerang. The person who wrote about this, or at least kind of suggested it through his writing that I want to talk about, is a man named M.A. Césaire, who wrote a discourse on colonialism that doesn't necessarily define fascism directly as colonialism brought home, but suggests that that's the case, and points out a lot of similarities between the two. Kind of after World War II ended, there was a lot of uh, shock and appall uh, had by you know, European liberals uh, kind of in reaction to what had just happened and what had just been allowed to happen. And what Césaire basically says is, like, if you look at what Hitler did in Germany and then in Austria and Czechia and Poland and then in France and the Low Countries and then in the parts of the Soviet Union that he controlled, is not really all that different from what European countries had been doing all over the world outside of Europe to people that they kind of thought were lesser um, for hundreds of years at this point, you know, is, is, is what Germany did all that different to what the British kind of did in India for a really long time or in Africa or what the French did in Africa or what, um, you know, Americans did in our own country. And so 
I think that's kind of, you know, in, in speaking specifically about the indigenous peoples and of course um, with Africans who were brought over as well. You know, all of these things can kind of be considered fascistic, I think, obviously slavery, genocide. I mean, these are things that we really closely associate with fascism. And Césaire basically argues that the main difference between fascism and colonialism is that fascism is just when you do it to Europeans. But furthermore, he argues that actually by participating in colonialism, Europeans built up the means of kind of desensitizing themselves to and justifying the actions of fascism down the line. You know, they developed the race science to justify colonialism that was later used to justify fascism is a, is a, is a good example. Or like that really hierarchical thinking. You know, obviously we've been hierarchical, we've been thinking hierarchically for a really, really long time, but the specific way in which kind of they use enlightenment style ideas as opposed to like the divine right of kings to justify the hierarchy i think has a lot to do with what gives fascism its specific flavor and so i actually really really like this definition for that reason i mean also concentration camps right i mean concentration camps were a tool of colonial control that were then brought home so that's probably the single best example of fascism literally being colonial strategies brought home and used on the internal populace it's something that's said in a lot of um i i, I can't i can't pull a specific tv show but like like mad men-esque tv shows about just um domineering businessmen it's like there are there are people who are just better than other people yeah that and that's like like very very boiled down version of it but it's it, it permeates everything a lot of things today and it's like an accept almost acceptable opinion to have there are like just like strong and weak people which is why people think capitalism is okay there's just there's just a natural order of things yeah yeah something i might hear from them of course of course especially from like um like a libertarian you would probably hear survival that, of the fittest yeah, yeah 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 social darwinism right yeah, you'd hear that some people are just more productive and they deserve to have more um, resources at their uh, disposal. But I think that Césaire really hits on something special when he talks about how the when 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 you think about how the way it's not just that they're both hierarchical systems, colonialism and fascism, but the way in which those hierarchies are justified and then enacted um, show a lot of really really close similarity. So I think that. Um, Specifically, when we talk about the relationship between liberalism and fascism, liberalism being the ideology under under which colonialism predominantly occurred, at least classical liberalism, you know, I think that that's something to think about. There is, however, something that I think is really, really important to fascism that none of these definitions really touch on, and it's it, it's not a super academic point. I can't rep I can't justify it with like numbers, but I mean, you ever seen pictures of Oswald Mosley and like his buddies, or, or, or look at the Nazis, look at the black shirts. I mean, and 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 then you look at the 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 kind of proto-fascist movements we have in the United States today. I'm not as familiar with the ones in Europe, but I I, I do based on what I've seen, I do kind of feel like they follow this pattern too. I mean, these guys are a bunch of nerds, right? They're a bunch of nerds who who like to LARP. And they, they love to dress up. And I think that's why that education to heroism is so important to me. I really think that fascism is, at its core, 
the manifestation of I, I don't want to say bored because bored kind of I think makes it sound like very frivolous because nihilistic nihilistic I, don't, I, I wouldn't say nihilistic but I think it's I think it's I think that it's people who suffer under kind of your regular capitalist alienation but obviously everyone does that but I think when you are someone who is sort of supposed to be the one the ones that that this is that the liberal society that you're in raises and makes very and makes your life very prosperous and yet you're sitting around you know so like let's take the united states you're a straight white you know maybe not rich but middle class you know guy and you're but you're still you know working for shitty wages and you're bored life just seems pointless to you and I think that there's this motivation that you want to feel like someone that's like in a fantasy movie that you saw or a sci-fi action movie that you saw. And I think that we really, I think that that's a really, really, really important part of fascism. Because you look at, like I said, you look at Oswald Mosley and his buddies. I mean, you got to look at those guys and say, like, come on, you're kind of doing this because you just want to dress up all, all like, like, like bad guys from a spy movie, right? Like. <laughs> And you look at, I mean, when people talk about the Nazis, like, so much of, like, 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 people talk about, like, oh, they look so spiffy in their Hugo Boss Army SS uniforms. Jesus. Or, 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 like, and you look at, I mean, I mean, look at this rally that just happened in, in Richmond with not, maybe not every person there was a proto-fascist, but a huge number of proto-fascists, full-on fascists, walking around with guns. I mean... These guys just want to dress up, right? Like a lot of these guys just want to dress up and feel important for it, and I think it's really, really big part of the motivation that brings people to the ideology. So what Mark's talking about is a Second Amendment rights rally to um, yeah. For those of you that don't gun control, follow U.S. news. Although, as yeah. I understand it, probably about sixty-three percent of you are pretty I, uh, in tune, according to our um, analytics. I thought you were going to say pretty at all. I think you're all pretty. Personally. I think you're all beautiful. On our, the inside and the outside. Our analytics do support that theory that everyone who listens to this podcast is wildly more attractive than those who do not. But I do agree with that point um, that, that they are like LARPing a little bit. Like you see the same guys who dress up in like airsoft gear, right? And shoot little plastic bullets at each other are wearing like very similar things Mil too. Come on, bro. It's Milson. I, but... I, I I don't I don't agree with it necessarily um, as a critique of them, right? You'll you'll see. I don't know if I would call Twitter. it a critique either because no, I think but if you're that the make reaction fun of them for something don't make fun of them for for being for being fat or wanting to because that, that's what I see all the time. I see people making fun of them, posting pictures of them in um like like fat guys in baseball helmets, right? Or just just like unfortunate looking people don't well, yeah i mean they're not... real people with legitimate concerns that are, have been evangelized to and have been sucked up in this yeah i feel i think that's an important point that these people are ultimately suffering under capitalist alienation and they've been given a chance to feel like they're a part been... of something bigger exactly who the fuck wouldn't take that and, chance? and i feel that too i feel that too i think that a lot of that profile that i gave of like that classic person that's very easy to recruit to fascism, a lot of those guys don't become fascists. A lot of those guys do become leftists. And I even find that sometimes in myself, I, I, 
when I think about like what being an advocate for working people actually means, uh, sometimes I envision myself as a hero. And I try to avoid that when I notice myself doing that. I try to stop myself because I know that that's a fascistic tendency. I know that that's not a good way to go. But I mean, it's not a, it's not only fascists who think this way, but fascism is the ideal, ideological end of letting that way of thinking become a whole way of being, mm-hmm. in my opinion. I think that's, if I had to actually give a succinct definition of fascism to someone who I wasn't like, who to, to another leftist at the very least, who kind of already understands the things that we've talked about earlier in this episode, I think that's probably the way that I would go. Now, depending on who you're talking to, of course, you might want to talk about different things. I think the 14 points work really well when you're talking about liberals. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good way to go. I think palingenetic ultranationalism works really well when you're talking to liberals. I think when you're trying to make a criticism of liberalism in relation to fascism, I think that M.A. Césaire's points are really, really, really worthwhile. Yeah, I feel like, in general, the the um, neoliberal population doesn't take too well to... Being compared um, to fascists. Being compared to fascists at all. <laughs> no. I don't think they'd enjoy that. Personally. Even fascists don't like being compared to fascists. Oh, but they're not fascists. You know, Antifa, they're real fascists, as we covered earlier. So, yeah. So, if you take anything away from this episode, remember that. Antifa are the real fascists. Yeah, so is everyone in your local DSA chapter as well. So, actually, if you're going to take anything away from this episode, please do remember to follow us on Twitter. Alex, what is the Twitter handle? If you really want to engage with us, or drop a DM, or just, I don't know, ask my address so you can send me homemade baked goods, um, the, the Twitter is at WeReadTheoryPod. Can you spell it? W-E-R-E-A-D-T-H-E-O-R-Y-P-O-D. There is an M at the end, but it's silent. No, I'm just kidding. That. No, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's the one with Pussy Riot and Bernie Sanders in the header. You want to play us out, Mark?